Family Mart. It's by the by the sushi machine. Smile. It's Zach Langley Chichi. I am at my lowest. It is three o'clock. I am still like drunk from day drinking. I reek of Chanel number nineteen, and I have a guest on who really wanted to talk about something. Asked if she could come on the show, and I said, "Why not? We're going to talk about masochism and Black Snake Moan from two thousand six. Who are you?" Okay, hey Zach. Um, I'm Blaze. Hey. I am. How are you? Oh, well, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I have my bunny, my pet bunny beside me. I am a PhD student at the Nebulous University of Santa Cruz. And um, I'm a scholar, sort of, in psychoanalysis and film studies. Okay, cool. I got ahead of myself because I'm, you know, still reeling off of the like three Irish coffees I had. I literally drank like half a bottle of whiskey and like now it's at the point where it's just it's like everything is so bright in my head it's raining. <laughs> Understood. Totally. Um so I was gonna ask you what are you doing, but you kinda summed it up. I know, like I'm in a bedroom, I have a rabbit. Um my boyfriend is not here. He's at a friend. So I am casually talking about this wonderful and yet completely panned film and I couldn't really ask for anything more from a Saturday night here in California. <laughs> Love it. Why do you follow me? Excellent question. Um, I feel like I saw your tweet, like a tweet and I connected with it. Oh my God, what the hell was it about? Damn it. Now I feel like I should have like archived this, but it was like about a movie slash cultural occurrence, obviously. And I was like, okay, yes. And then I followed you and I think we connected about a take that I had and yet I do not remember exactly and I don't expect you to, but then you followed me and I was like, oh my God, gorgeous. And then as I was reading your tweets slash listening to the pod, I was like, obviously I need to talk about the one film that I think almost like no one has talked about, at least no one in the academic world, which is of course Black Snake Mm -hmm. Moon. And I was... Yeah, I love it. And you said, yeah. <laughs> I did. Um, you know, no one... I, but when I started the podcast, I really had to, like, kind of, uh, like, rake my friends over coals to get them to talk to me. And <laughs> I was so, like, amused that you wanted to come on that I was like, <laughs> yes, let's do it. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, I mean, like, I was... <laughs> yeah, I was just, like, super into the fact that you were not like the average queer like twitter and like you're talking you're giving takes that were not not the average take but then i saw like even after i requested i saw your uh pod about the rape films and it was like incredibly my thoughts on the matter so i was like if you're gonna talk about that shit you have to talk about like black sang and the rest 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about it today. But before we get into that, I uh, think our leading topic for today is we're going to chat about masochism and race a little bit. Um, In your film and like psychoanalytic studies, uh, what's like kind of your experience with masochism? Well, (laughs) yes, not in my personal (laughs) life, but let's keep that shit to the academic. So um, in my experience, academically, I like study Lacan, Jacques Lacan, uh, the psychoanalyst. And for him, masochism is not just the obsession with being harmed, but is more of like a structural position in relation to desire. So what it means for him is like masochism, of course, is about the pleasure of being harmed. But this is not just reserved for the sexual realm or like the BDSM world, but is sort of just like a uh, universal category or structure that defines almost all realms of discourse. Um, It's not just to be pathologized. So I guess what I see today in the contemporary cultural world is kind of like an influx of masochistic subject relations, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. Um, where the enjoyment of being harmed kind of honestly to me defines what it means to be a political actor today. And what's funny about that is that as much as it as it is a political position, that position is sort of being uh, delegitimized in cultural production, like in film um, or in advertisements, right? So uh, I guess like in the, in the uh, post Me Too world, there isn't really supposed to be a person who enjoys pain, right? So because it's become right. a political thing, which is to say being harmed is bad which it is of course but i mean like it erases the fact that sometimes like the harm that is inflicted upon us whether consensually or not consensually can actually produce a kind of unconscious pleasure um that i think the erasure of which is is interesting to me so what i mean to say is not that like we're going to glorify masochism or like glorify pain but the enjoyment that we get out of it is just as important as, uh, I guess, uh, punishing the harm that that starts it in the first place. I don't know. Damn, I love it. I uh, <laughs> I have a pretty extensive career with masochism in my personal life. I guess I'll just <laughs> I have been alluding to it throughout the show, where I'll just like say like I'm a masochist. Like everyone kind of thinks I'm joking, but it's not a joke. right no I mean Uh, honestly me too but it's like hashtag me too um (laughs) yeah no no one wants to like uh no one wants to hear that you know like it's it's kind of I don't know why I was like so afraid in college but like when I first started to like realize that like I was like interested in like being um subjected and feeling pain and I've always had an interest in the extremity of experience and that especially like, you know, takes to art and what have you. But in terms of like sexuality and like corporeal experience as well, I like have always loved like the most extreme and kind of intense like experiences you can have. But I always like carried a shame around it as well that really prevented me from like talking about it to my friends or with anyone and I have like a I had like a really deep embarrassment about it and it wasn't until I came to Japan where 
everybody describes themselves in a way that's like not fetishistic at all it's like either s or m like they either will tell you they're su or emu and it's like very normal to um kind of have that conversation when you meet a lover so wow literally everyone that's like wonderful low-key i'm sure i'm generalizing a little bit and also i find that my sexual partners have been a little bizarre you know me being (laughs) a white gay person in japan (laughs) like it's probably not the normal realm of human beings but nonetheless i uh yeah, I, every person I've talked to is, like, familiar with uh, that language, even if they don't use it to describe themselves with, which has been my experience up to this point. Oh, wow. That's liberating. Yeah, I mean, like, for me, uh, I I mean, like, not to be too, like, personal, but, um, you know, whatever. I'm, like, a person who has experienced, like, childhood trauma, but because, mm-hmm. I mean, like, I'm fine, I'm good, whatever. <laughs> Uh, in my in my experience of like uh, I guess you could say recovering or like coming to terms with that, I realized first of all that the ways in which uh, I obviously reenacted whatever that trauma was, you know, in like sort of like uh, you know not identical ways, but in my relationships, etc., in which I would like start to become the victim of some kind of harm, and once I started learning about uh, psychoanalysis I realized like okay we don't just do things like that because there's no reason we do it because there's always like some kind of strange pleasure in reenacting the things that we re- repeat and for Freud and Lacan it's called repetition compulsion um where the conscious thought of oh this sucks and I hate it and I'm suffering is really covering over the exact opposite and so I realized that once I was like reflecting on a very terrible relationship and I was like wait a second I absolutely did enjoy feeling like I was this like woeful being and yet at the center of this woeful being was the fact that I was actually causing the harm in the relationship so it was like this very complicated relationship and that led me to research the degree to which Pleasure is always operating in all of the things. I mean, and when I say all of the things, I'm not even like generalizing, like things that we repeat that are harmful. There's always like an unconscious enjoyment underneath. And so I, I started to research masochism. Um, That's kind of uh, my experience with uh, academically beginning to understand masochism as well, is that I was really curious about like the why I wanted to do this and it was after a particularly rough relationship I had with a bisexual guy who just eviscerated my heart and I had put myself in the position to be like victimized by him and like emotionally injured by him very willfully and knowingly and you know it wasn't because I'm like I want to suffer it it (laughs) was more of like a subconscious like positioning of myself or something and it wasn't until like a year or so later when I was like revisiting like my memories of it and like why I had been so obsessed with uh that guy and like kept injuring myself about it and my first intuition was like oh like all gays and women are like this like right exactly base and I think that is kind of true it's like basic impulse for uh gays and women to produce drama by means of emotional violence oh absolutely yeah Yeah. 
Like, I think that that's just base nature. But I uh, ended up reading Deleuze. Did I say oh, that right? You did. You absolutely did. Woo, look at me go. I've never studied philosophy ever. <laughs> I just started doing it for, like, purposes of uh, self-grandization. <laughs> no worries. I, I read Deleuze. I read uh, Coldness and Cruelty, which is coupled with uh, Venus and Furs. And that was kind of the beginning of my understanding of it all because I began to recognize that when you create that masochistic contract with like the Sadian goddess or whatever oh my god like, the person who you want to inflict damage on you what you're really doing is you're just crafting them in your little statue of desired image wow I've never read that and also like wonderful to hear that Deleuze has a good thing to say about masochism because like I as a Lacanian I'm a little biased against him but that sounds mm-hmm. like on track with something I, I would believe and say. So wonderful. Yeah, I can't even like describe myself by any like philosophical terms. <laughs> I just like I just like tritely select something that looks interesting on the cover usually <laughs> when it comes to philosophy. <laughs> like um I did search out um coldness and cruelty because I wanted to read about masochism, but like when I read um, Beyond Good and Evil last year oh, by Nietzsche. Yes. I did it because the penguin cover was cute. Oh I liked God, the cover. What is the cover? I don't even know. <laughs> it's a little man in a bunch of like a triangular, like uh, brightly <laughs> colored shapes. And it, it was like, it really set my gay brain off. I was like, oh my God, cute. And I read it and I enjoyed it. And then I read um, Powers of Horror by Kristeva because oh she looked God. really dramatic on the cover. Oh my God, she looks very upsetting on the cover. I mean, I honestly never thought that that was her because I was just like, they literally took a stock photo of like sad, like slightly ethnic woman or something. I like yeah. didn't know, but yeah, no, she's so upset. <laughs> yeah, I love her. I love the way Kristeva looks. I like, I am obsessed with like, looking at like any pictures I can find of her, like uh from like the 90s or 80s where she just like always looks so put upon yeah (laughs) now i'm like googling her image because need to look at more oh and then i read capital because um i do like marx and i was in my uh, little communist moment where i was really certain i was going to be able to be the one that breaks down capitalism for good um I now see that that's kind of a hopeless endeavor, but I really enjoyed the aesthetic experience of just like forcing myself through a thousand pages of capital. And I, I, uh, I thought it was very artistic. Um, and then all of it evacuated my brain immediately. Oh, oh my God. That's funny. Like I'm like TAing introductism right now and we haven't gotten to capital yet. And I am dreading the day because I straight up have never read it. The early marks I'm down with, but I don't know that I can understand things like value and exchange that well. I'm more of a philosophy brain and that sounds a little right. bit like money. Anyway. <laughs> um, my experience with it is that it like it boils down the concepts like so into such basic nebulous, like anti-real facts about it that I was able to keep up for about 200 pages before my brain started getting wary after like week three okay (laughs) and I kept notes like I I marked out my copy really well and I had like a a journal that I I took down my thoughts in so I think if I reread what I wrote about it I'll be able to get back to it but in general philosophy to me is the 
a tool for thinking more about myself and nobody else. (laughs) Yo, for real. Like, okay, so Lacan, my homie and my number one, uh, the first concept that I used to get into him was this really wonderful one called jouissance in in French. Oh, yes. Exactly. In French, it just means pleasure, enjoyment. Um, but of course, the more capacious language of French, like it probably means like 10 hundred things that I can't say. But um, it essentially just means like, yeah, the, the pleasure that is within pain, but also like a feeling that is beyond both pleasure and pain at the same time, like this feeling of complete, like almost like overwhelm. And as soon as I learned it, I was like, okay, I'm on board with psychoanalysis because <laughs> this explains a number of different feelings for me, including like, being too drunk or feeling like (laughs) I love my boyfriend too much so I'm gonna shatter my brain or feeling like I just got dumped that I have no other place to go except for to completely self-annihilate um and is leads us back to masochism which is to say that I think you know the general psychoanalytic uh understanding of it is that the jouissance produced by self-harm is exactly what I just described like it's it's something that is not just pure uh like fun or happiness but this thing that is excessive of both pleasure and pain and that is sort of just exactly that experience that shatters both of those categories but our brains like can't really comprehend it and therefore usually uh categorizes it into either one pleasure or pain but mm. that that linguistic categorization of pleasure or pain is sort of reductive, right? Like it can't really get at it. So it's easy to just say like, oh, this was horrible for me because I was crying in my room alone and therefore it's pain. But if you end up in a cycle where you repeat that same circumstance that gives you that uh, emotion, you can best be sure that like that is a sort of unconscious pleasure as response that brings you again and again. Mm, yeah, I, I'm pretty familiar with um, Joyce <laughs> from, from Christophe because she yeah. talks a lot about how it's on the same, it's a kind of on the, if uh, sublimity and Joyce are like on a coin, it's like sublimity is one side and then Joyce is like on, on the other. Um, and that like there is a, in the extremity of like both there is like uh an element of horror and of uh yes. pain as well as there is like in a uh, overwhelming pleasure so it's that was really useful for me thinking about my uh relationships up to this point as well and i think you're really right when you say that um or lacan i guess is is who you're mm-hmm. you're quoting that masochism has now taken like a structural or like a large cultural role mm-hmm. um in which a lot of political actors are, are stationing themselves as, as masochists does that sound like i'm getting you right i mean yeah i mean what i mean to say about the cultural role is not that like people admittedly say i mean people do like in the more mm-hmm. queer uh sexual level of course but I, I think what I mean to say is that like masochism is operating at the level of cultural discourse um, in sort of like a maybe unconscious way. So like, I don't know, I don't want to get too spicy here, but like um, any call to being 
harmed by a, a structural position or like an identity position of course mm-hmm. of course there's like a legitimate conscious level of pain and that is not to be like delegitimized but there's always operating underneath this level of pleasure that comes from that position and like that pleasure comes from i don't know like getting uh the attention or the uh the space to voice that pain and that itself is a means to pleasure and it's it's like hard to explain um without the use of like a particular example but i know for a fact from twitter discourse for example that like when you are grieved or when you're experiencing harm that harm itself is elevated to the level of uh sort of like exalt exalted um status or something like this so i know for a fact that like that is jouissance the jouissance of masochism operating and of course this is like not pc to mention because it's sort of like an affront to the very thing that they're trying to call to attention which is the harm right so like to say that obviously that someone is experiencing pleasure from their very like socially uh or culturally oppressed position like that's not cute but i think it would do us all good to acknowledge at least the grain of pleasure within that sort of ball yeah i i think that's like a, a big answer to a lot of cultural problems and even though it is uh hot and spicy to say that people like being oppressed i mean i'll just say like i do like right i mean like (laughs) i'll say it i mean i mean i uh yeah uh, not to you know bastardize your words or anything but um i guess like when i was in high school and i was surrounded with feminists and i (laughs) Did, could not claim female oppression to myself, I was like, wait, I can go the gay way. <laughs> and so I I spent, like, years, like, digging myself into as much, like, how have gays been oppressed as possible. I, I felt like little... This sounds really psychotic, but it's all true. Like, I found, like, little pricks of joy whenever I found, like, some new horror, like, affronted to gay men. Like, <laughs> I, I spent my entire, like, college career, like, doing, uh, like, literary research on, like, HIV-AIDS literature. And, like, the more terrible it got, like, the more satisfied I felt. Yeah, I mean, that's, I hope... I sound evil. No, I mean, like, I am right there with you, which is why I'm going to say, like, I hope that's universal, because otherwise I'm a literal crazy psycho. But, um, no, I... I think, honestly, it's just where women and gays, like, that's probably it. <laughs> this is the women and gays story. Thank you for watching. Because, I mean, do straight guys do this? I, I can't... No, you know what? No, I guess they don't. I mean, they well, do I it guess, now. Like, the only thing I can think of is like, um, they do now for sure. I mean, it now, <laughs> now it's getting there. And I mean, here comes the spicy, spicy sauce. It's, you know, a lot of the, uh, race activism in the last exactly. few years has kind of engendered that. And the easy target to, um, attack without getting in any trouble is, you know, like white people kneeling at the <laughs> BLM riots last year. Exactly. Oh, God. That's, like, the worst kind of this, too, because it's, like, it's not... If there was going to be something called genuine jouissance of masochism, that is not it. 
<laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> for example, the reason the white people kneeled, etc., the reason the white people like need to like self-flagellate, and I am a white person, but is is sort of to me like a mimicry of the let's say more legitimate form of quote-unquote victimhood based reasons that occurs at the level of poc right so like mm-hmm. okay POC are legitimately aggrieved at the level of the material and that is bad and so white people are like oh fuck like how do i deal with this at the at my own level except for to okay yes 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 self-flagellate um like the, the poc are being flagellated by the state and so I must do this personally. And yeah, I mean, it's the same like psychological effect, except for it's probably more successful when the culture and state are flagellating you because jouissance like operates best when it is given from another. Like, yeah. for example, like Lacan has this category called hysteria which today means a whole lot of things. But for Lacan's <laughs> psychoanalytic perspective, hysteria is this position where like your only desire is to keep desire going so Mm. the moment you get what you desire that shit is no longer what you want and it's actually gross and you need to get it away so the classic example weirdly enough is marilyn monroe um where she like constantly sought out these romantic partners and then was just like completely dissatisfied and like went on these like binges of drugs or whatever it was um but at the end of the day her dissatisfaction was the fact that like every desire she got was not it and she kept desiring something that would fill it unconsciously knowing that there would be nothing so what that means for like the general culture today is that like i guess the status of victimhood, the status of feeling wrong, just like Marilyn Monroe might have unconsciously or consciously felt, is that there will never be something that will actually end that that feeling. In fact, the feeling of not getting what you want is itself a self-perpetuating thing that will lead to more positions where you where you are in that state of lack of satisfaction. And why? Because satisfaction is actually terrifying. <laughs> Um, yeah yeah and that makes a lot of sense I think and especially when you apply it politically or topically I mean if we sort of like focus any sort of activism or politic around that kind of satisfaction and like the orgasmic release of like getting what you want like the it's going to lead to just more like failures and I guess sort of like a simulacrum of what you want but not quite like what it's supposed to be so we're just going to keep like birthing these uh political means that actually don't have any uh consequence or resulting effect on you know the victims which are the people of a country or a state yeah um and like i guess key to this discussion is is that like when we desire something like we're not just desiring an object we're desiring a whole ass circumstance where that object Mm -hmm. fits in and for lacan it's and for like anybody it's it's called a fantasy right so the purpose of a fantasy for lacan is to actually like keep us desiring 
um, not to just like set us straight on a path towards getting it, but to literally keep us desiring. So imagine a person who like literally does not want anything. That person is very sad and like not doing okay. Um, in fact, is like maybe the definition of depression. So like for psychic health, we all need to want something. And so honestly, the best position to be in to keep that shit going is to ha not have something. And I think that um, if you read the con of Freud or anything, you'll realize that like that is the structuring, uh, I guess you could say like catalyst for what subjectivity is, is that we need to want something and we need that want to fit into a fantasy. And if that fantasy stops being, uh, I guess, possible, we will construct another one instantaneously that allows us to just keep fucking wanting. And so this is where I guess the origin of the enjoyment of not having or being harmed comes from uh, of masochism. Hmm, I see. I just keep thinking about that bisexual guy throughout this whole conversation. Wait, who <laughs> is the bisexual guy you were talking about? I just saw this guy for, like, four months, and it was so intense and, like, such a thing, and uh, he immediately out of, well, I don't know why I said immediately. He's, he suddenly broke it up out of nowhere, and uh, the way he did it was that he said he was coming over. He, like, was in his car outside of his house. He, like, texted me that he was there. I, like, looked at him from, like, the balcony, and then he, like, called me and was like, I can't see you anymore, and that was it. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> so then I spent, you know, months, like, without, you know, having the object that I know I can't have, you know, flagellating myself with the, the memory of him. <laughs> so Exactly. So I wonder, I was like, well, you know, not to have the object is like, I guess the academic uh, ideal, but I can tell you, me not having that object was not great. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, like me too. Like, okay, I was in a relationship uh, where it was long distance. So obviously the object was simply quite out of reach, but uh, the very fact that I could have it and I could even think of the ways in which I could do better to make it happen or to, to, to get it to me. That was mm -hmm. the reason why I thought the sex with this person was the best I ever had. Like today I'm in a healthy relationship and I love him, but like that degree of like sort of like psychotic desire and attachment isn't present precisely because I know it's, he's still there. Like he's not leaving. And like, that's what health is. But tell that to the greater population if, if you uh, trans translate it to the greater, like, I guess, cultural discourse, like, people don't like to hear that. Um, and, like, I guess an example of that would be the immutable and transient object of sort of, uh, I guess, anti-racism today. Like, when can mm -hmm. we get it? When can we stop being upset about it? And, um, you know... I don't know. It's, it seems to me that like every step along the way that we approach whatever that utopic moment is, there's always something yet to, to be gained. And um, it feels a lot like that relationship with my, my long distance boyfriend in that way, <laughs> which is to right. say it was hurting me to want it, you know, and, and recognizing the things along the way would have been a little better. Yeah, it's tragic that health is actually such a boring and, like, not, you know, <laughs> extreme experience. And uh, 
maybe that is what like drives gays away from marriage and why I think that like gay marriage is um you know merely a, a luxury novelty and like not really a a fundamental cornerstone of LGBT liberation uh, is because like achieving like a a sort of domestic health that is absent of those extremes is you know boring and unless like gays are loaded up with poppers and crack it's like not gonna it's oh my not God. gonna yes okay have you it's ever not gonna keep him going <laughs> have you heard of the book no future by lee edelman by any i haven't okay okay you're gonna die at this book you're gonna love it okay um i'll do my okay, best I'm to putting do... in my goodreads right now no future <laughs> to do my best at a uh, small synopsis is so lee edelman white gay man scholar brilliant uh, he basically writes about gay marriage and uh, specifically gay childbearing. And he draws upon cultural examples and political examples where everyone always talks about the child as this thing that we have to like consistently sort of uh, anticipate and protect, even though it doesn't exist mm. yet. And so he's saying like gays as people who can't naturally reproduce are inherently sort of opposite of that child figure. Um, and he uses this as a step into discuss why actually the queer incapacity to reproduce is like sort of uh, this anti anti-futurist, I guess, like modality or whatever. Um, and so that queers are against the future because of this incapacity and therefore, um, the future as like a, a horizon of, uh, I guess, constant deferral, like, don't worry about it, we're going to get to it in the future, or like, don't worry about it, like, this is for our kids in the future. Heteronormativity mm-hmm. as the, as the uh, group that, or heterosexuals as the group that can reproduce into the future are sort of this function that allows us to pretend that problems don't happen and like allows us to put the solution to those problems way in the future as a fantasy. And so queers for him, their responsibility is to sort of disrupt that as like an inherent capacity and to like, uh, I guess, disrupt the, the phantasmic quality of like pretending that something is yet to come. So for him, and like this book is so funny, it's like such a psycho polemic. Um, a lot of it's like very hard to understand, like ridiculous Lacan film theory. But the intro, I will say, is like he basically has a line that says, fuck the future, fuck little Annie orphan, whatever. And like, <laughs> I mean, he just straight up says this. And it's about like harnessing the capacity of like, uh, I guess maybe anti fantasy and anti future at the same time. And recognizing the degree to which marriage, political recognition, the ability to adopt are all subscribing to a fantasy of sort of like constant reproduction of the same, I guess. Well, anti-fantasy kind of sounds like what everyone needs like a dose of in the (laughs) political climate. Like on the same note that you're talking about like the utopia of anti-racism, it's like, you know, the movie we're about to talk about was like made in like 2006 and... um, you know, that was, like, at a time when I think a lot of people, you know, at least white people, felt like the racial utopia had been reached. And then with, like, the election of Barack Obama and race kind of becoming a common polemic again, is that in pursuing that utopian idea, 
we've uh, kind of just elongated the the spiral in like new and devious ways. I think. Yeah, I would. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. Like in two thousand and six, where were we really? I mean, we were before. Oh Obama. God, where were we? <laughs> <laughs> Snake Moan is a 2006 feature directed by Craig Brewer, starring Samuel L. Jackson, Christina Ritchie, and Justin Timberlake. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's a... Uh, I had seen it in middle school, and it was kind of like just a uh, sensory experience. One of the dozens of movies I saw in the presence of my father who just left like uh, HBO on for countless hours. And uh, the movie is sort of like a faux exploitation or at least kind of referencing that sort of aesthetic um, race film about desire, masochism, sex addiction, uh, race tensions, anxiety. It has uh, the entire human spectrum in this uh, segment of two hours. So I'm kind of curious what your history with this movie is. Okay, so I had never seen it until literally this summer. Um, no reason that I haven't seen it. I just haven't. And then I suddenly sort of embraced my interest in movies about, I guess, masochism or exploitation or specifically female masochism. And, mm-hmm. uh, given the, like, I guess, summer moment of BLM and race relations in America, I was like particularly... Uh, particularly interested in the figure of the black man like sort of low-key enslaving the white woman and so I watched Mm -hmm. it and me and my boyfriend we were watching it and I expected this movie to be sort of like a comical experience or like just generally silly and instead we found ourselves like really sort of like appreciative of the movie as a film um, and then as I was watching it, I couldn't stop exclaiming about how important the movie was for psychoanalysis um, and specifically hysteria and masochism. So that's where I enter in. Yeah, so I, I rewatched this today while I was drunk in between podcasting. <laughs> and it was a really uncomfortable experience, actually, because even though it has like a lot of um, references to ex exploitation filmmaking and kind of rape cinema the actual reality of it is like a pretty like straight-faced um like drama and I guess there's like black comedic elements to it but the reality when I watched it like laying on my side like kind of sick with my head hurting (laughs) was just like uh sort of like abjection and discomfort like watching Christina Ritchie like writhe around and scream Yeah. But the the overall like uh, answer of the movie, I think, is is quite beautiful, and I was really taken aback that this movie has the guts to um, 
end so positively, which I was not expecting. No, yeah, that's true. I, I guess, like, the ending to me is is specifically pertinent to the moment, which is to say that, like, or, like, an answer to the moment, I guess, which is, like, uh, perhaps doing the normatively ethical thing could actually work for us all rather than just, like, fucking around with it. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, you know, she gets married to the man. It's all good in the end after her long bout in promiscuity and uh, I guess enslavement, if you will. Um, But what I found particularly interesting or one of the things was that I guess upon my research of the film, because I straight up researched this film as soon as I watched it, was that like no one had written about it at all in academia. Zero. And, like, if they did, it was kind of just about, you know, Southern racial relations or sort of condemning the film for hyper-sexualizing women. And I was like, okay, honey, like, I know psychoanalysis and there's a lot more to be said. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm like, I read good psychoanalytic theorists, so why not? Um, I thought about hysteria, which... I already talked about today, but like this, this idea of like reinstating your desire by having it thwarted constantly and how she perfectly exemplifies that by staying with uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character at the end. Like she sort of like reinvests her fantasy elsewhere from where it might've been at the beginning. Um, But of course, by the end, we realize that Justin Timberlake's character, who is sort of like the soft boy in it all, and I think that, like, the allusions to his soft boyness are kind of funny. Um, he has this anxiety disorder. That anxiety disorder comes back once he gets back from the war. And yet she still wants to be with him. So I can't really tell if this is a message that's sort of pro-soft boy or sort of like a joke or a condemnation of them in the end because he's still sort of lame. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess to kind of contextualize that scene for anyone who hasn't seen the film before it is about Christina Ritchie, who is just a slut, just a big <laughs> whore. And she's uh, running around having sex with uh, people who aren't her military boyfriend. And after a uh, particularly rough experience in which she is uh, uh, kind of takes a terrible amount of alcohol and drugs in her Confederate flag crop top and her jeans, looking like deathly skinny. She um, looks hot, She though. gets... The, oh, <laughs> she looks good. Like, uh... <laughs> I have never seen such thinness in film before. Like, come to think of it, this might be the skinniest woman I've ever seen. And I was reading about it, and she said that, like, she, like, didn't eat any food with nutrients for, like, six months. Shut up. That's, like, fashion right there. Oh, my God. I know. She, like, literally looks like a model in it. And uh, she gets totally battered and, like, uh, fucked up by one guy and is uh, picked up off the southern street by samuel l jackson who then um chains her to a radiator after nursing her back to health and uh decides he's going to make a biblical mission of curing her nymphomania right exactly and so like i mean like the scholarly articles that i like could find were all about the quote-unquote nymphomania and they even used nymphomania as like a legit category with which to describe her which I found interesting because these articles are obviously post-2006 and I'm not sure that we've used that category since like 1970 or something. 
So yeah. <laughs> that was fun. Um, and so, yeah, like people usually talk about it as like a way to sort of uh, condemn what hysteria was or is for Freud, etc. Like, like saying like, oh, they've characterized it wrong. This film is fucked up, right? So I would like to take a different angle, obviously, um, which is to say that like her stance towards staying with Samuel L. Jackson, this religious Southern man, is not just like a, uh, an endorsement of normative religious values, but more of an endorsement at the legitimacy of what it means to, I guess, enjoy not captivity in the like juridical sense but captivity in the more like the psychical sense Mm. what do you think this movie kind of suggests about culture like more largely that makes you so interested in it um yeah okay well i guess like today i knowing that this movie would not have been made in the contemporary moment um, okay, yeah, that is for real. Yeah. Like, just, uh, I cannot believe that this movie was even made, like, in, in 2006, because it is just so brash and, like, bold with the sort of, like, racial provocation of it. And I haven't seen anything that gutsy except uh, Paradise Love, which I, I talked about a, a few episodes ago with Adam Tedesco. But, like, the imagery of that movie also... Um, takes a really like aggressive like look at um like these sort of power dynamics and in being so aggressively visible with it i i find it to be very provocative and meaningful right so like i guess some of the articles i came across suggested that this movie was sort of perpetuating the uh (laughs) the quote-unquote hysteria around black men uh capturing white women right so like this is a historically observed um i guess cultural trope right so like the white woman uh has been captured by the black man but it sort of tweaks it into a more like acceptable or palatable way where like okay the black like and when i say uh, acceptable i mean like acceptable for like woke standards which is to say that, like, a black man is actually not the bad guy here, right? So, like, the black man is the religious and pure, pure-ish character taking the white woman whose sexuality is the reason for her demise. And uh, he fixes her in some capacity, and she has to learn her mistakes. So, on the one hand, this movie couldn't have been made today, but on the, on the other hand, like, hey there is some kind of message about like racial inversion, like to say that like maybe white women are the people who are doing the wrong or like white women have a lesson to be learned from uh, the black population. Um, And that's, that's the type of scholarly article I've read, but I feel like it more teaches us a lesson about maybe the errors of me too, maybe the ways in which I, the lessons learned from sort of like moral upkeep are valuable. Um, and then on the other hand, it, it, it puts a lot of, uh, I guess, denigration at the character of Justin Timberlake, who at the start of the film is already sort of, I guess you could say weak. <laughs> and yeah. so he joins the army sort of, it seems as though he's drafted, but I guess he's not because we don't have a draft in the country at that time. But he actually leaves the army because his anxiety disorder 
is too intense. And then once he comes back and is reunited with his true love, because they do get married at the end, uh, he has an extreme panic attack when they're in the car leaving to their fantasy home. And she sort of comforts him again. Um, so that part, I don't know quite what to make of, but I believe that like, there's a lot going on with sort of like an, an inversion of the contemporary moment's understanding of like racial aggressivity or passivity uh, and the way gender works within that. Yeah, I was also surprised that, um, I mean, just from like the marketing, I watched like the, tr- the trailer again and like looked at the poster and like, it really does like try to like mark up a lot of like the um, like race drama in the movie, but actually, like you're really right that it really is more about like the like the sexually masochistic relationship and is uh you know really doesn't even have much of a comment about race at the end of the day, no. and if it does, it's like very like oblique and not really what the film seems to be trying to impart. No, I mean it's straight up not. I mean, two thousand and six, like what was the political thing happening at the time? Like I don't necessarily you know like anti-Iraq right like race was not this uh universal cultural moment for the United States so um it makes me think I guess like I mean we were in a historical moment where we were still in this like race uh colorblind thing um but in doing so it unknowingly or unconsciously articulated not the contemporary like racist uh viewpoint but more of this like i don't know non-pc obsession with the victim status that women uh occupy and yeah i don't know yeah i'm feeling a little bit there's a lot of uh agency in the i forgot her christina virtue's character's name but like she has multiple opportunities presented to her to like get help or, like, try to, like, free herself. And, like, outside of her initial reaction where, like, she uh, runs outside and, like, graphically uh, collapses on the, ch- like, the chain, like, pulls back on her and she topples to the ground. Oh, like, yeah. Outside of that, like, there are multiple characters who come in and, like, see her in chains and, like, she fucks one of them. Yes! And the other one, she, like, doesn't even ask for help or, like, w- want help at all. Like, she has the choice, but she chooses to remain change of the radiator right and you know you brought up the the kid that she fucks and i say kid because i'm she he's literally like 16 and he's like this black kid who comes to the home and knows uh samuel jackson's character and she seduces him like it's not his interest by any means but of course being a, a hormonal teenager they have sex and it's used in the film as sort of like this indication of her uh continued I guess perversion or deviance but I guess the way that works with racial relations today is that like since we've moved past the 2006 moment and before because this is a trope that's moved quite a bit since its inception is to say that like now uh black men we've revised our our uh I guess opinion of them as sexual predators which I think is right but this movie like sort of allows us to see the ways in which white women are actually sort of responsible for the ways in which black men are, uh, I guess, like, 
made to be seen as predators, but also it's it's not just doing that in like a purely anti-racist, like ideological way. It's yeah. to me showing the ways in which complicity of the white woman is wrapped up in enjoyment. Like this is the thing we have to really tie into this film. It's not like poor Christina Ritchie. I mean, it sort of is, but like, it's also like Christina Ritchie is having some of a good time. Like, so one of the first scenes in the film is Justin Timberlake's character goes to uh, war or whatever. He like is enlisted, he leaves. And in this scene, when he literally just drives off, she's so sad that she starts to have a convulsion where she starts like masturbating or like yeah, she's like jerking off in the grass. Like literally, what does that tell us about this movie? Is that her pain brings her to orgasm? I mean, to me, that was like the first and most literal instantiation of the message, which is like, okay, we can obviously feel bad for the material circumstances that this woman is going through but the psychical undercurrent is that there is a deep deep and unconscious pleasure happening right alongside it oh beautiful i mean that i think is the most important like uh sort of emotional reaction i had from the movie too is you know thinking about how like pain can produce like that kind of pleasure and then choosing not to apologize or like try to create a reason or like I mean the the movie does like go to some like lengths to like give her a psychological like uh reasoning behind this which I, I find to be one of the weaker elements of the film is that oh she was like abused as a child so like she's like reenacting that and I I think I would have preferred it to be more vague but regardless it's like the movie doesn't like condemn or attack her for that and it instead like it gives her like a uh avenue to refocus like that kind of masochistic desire onto a new subject yeah you know yeah when i think about the fact that it gives the context of her childhood to me like it doesn't take away from it but i i fear that in the wrong uh ears or wrong eyes it does exactly what you think but like for me as like a, a psychoanalytic or whatever the hell it sort of just furthers my point which is to say like when you are a child or anyone who's a uh, victim of trauma your your psychic and conscious mind only has so many options right so one of the options is to completely feel shattered and ruined and not have anywhere to go from it and this happens to plenty of people but the other route that your brain and psyche can go into is to repress that pain and turn it into a form of enjoyment. And I think that like, this is the thing that's missing from today's discourse about trauma, which is to say like the repetitive impulse, which I think like contemporary Instagram psychologists get a hand on is like, mm -hmm. we do that, uh, because it's like, oh, it's not our responsibility. We want to gain mastery over it. But it, it misses the degree to which, like, it's actually useful for us to feel and get that pleasure out of something that's so primary to our psyches or so horrible, because it's saving us from a complete sort of devastation psychically. So when we repeat these things that are ostensibly bad, like, yeah, it's good to, uh, I guess, heal them and, and redirect our actions elsewhere. But 
to completely decry those as unhealthy is, is not true. Like that's what's saving us from complete psychic devastation. And I think this movie shows us that like somehow along the path, her recreation and enjoyment of that captivity is, is sort of what allows her to move out of it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I haven't really seen a lot of art that also is courageous enough to express that point of view. Like, I just went on the Perfume Nationalist this week to talk about The Piano Teacher, and, like, that is, like, off the top of my head, the only other movie that's, like, so, like, brazenly in favor of, like, that kind of, like, masochism. And I I think it's it's really thrilling to see it in such, like, a honest context i mean yeah and like here's my big spicy take of the day or of the night for me which is to say okay so there's this like one there's this one very notable sort of psychoanalytic book and race relations book called red white and black cinema and the structure of u.s antagonisms and it's this book that's credited with creating this term called afro pessimism which is right. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like a theory that says that like, uh, the, like blackness as a category is like ontologically or essentially defined by slavery. Right. So he like, he goes through all these, uh, American movies and finds the ways in which either, uh, slavery and that ontological status is either obscured, hidden, or sort of flaunted and exploit exploited. And I, I, I just thought about this today, which is to say, like, when your book is an attempt to ontologize and, like, cement the status of Black Americans, like, in slavery, obviously you can't include this film, right? Or, like, the white girl is chained to a radiator by a Black guy. But I think that, like, this film complicates that ontologization of uh, what captivity means. So, like, of course, there's a historical materialist element where slavery does, in fact, inform Blackness, but it still misses the level of enjoyment that informs the degree to which that is reified over time. And so what I mean Mm -hmm. is, like, you can have a founding moment of trauma, both historically and personally, and that can be reified over time, and it's very true on a material level, But when we bring the white woman into it, whose material status is just not the same as the black person, like, you know, white women are pretty chilling over, you know, in general in comparison. But this (laughs) allows us to see, this allows us to see like the pleasures of that, I guess, not enslavement, obviously, but like that captivity and the ways it can and does reproduce itself and how that's not something to be, like, condemned. I'm not saying, like, fuck y'all white women who do this, but more like, what can we gain from this, right? Like, so how can we both experience the pleasures of harm but not feel shame, right? Like, but to actually realize how it's politically useful. And I think it is. It, it, it is. And instead today we see, I don't know, me too. <laughs> and I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I no, you're exactly on, right, because, but... like, all of, like, the, the political movements that come out of that way of thinking are completely trite. It's, it's yeah. just, like, un- not functional. And the worst and most offensive part about all of it, to me, is that 
the failures of activism and the way that people kind of try to alchemize like their fear of captivity or like their fear of oppression or like their ideas about it and try to like turn it into like uh you know me too or whatever else have you is that it's so ugly it like at least if it had some aesthetic appeal to it i might be fascinated there but, is like, no aesthetic appeal too? girl oh my god no. it's so unattractive i could go on but like the next time I see another girl on my Instagram, like, talk about their experience of being, like, maybe called, like, beautiful by their boss and, like, calling for a sexual harassment training, I will literally lose my mind. First of all, like, I don't know. We, maybe it's too mean of me to say that we all experience this, but, like, I enjoy being told that I'm pretty by a higher up in my, like, workplace because, to me, it makes me feel like I'm special and you know what? Let's all take a lesson from Anna Nicole Smith here and to say that, like, you can use that, even if it is slightly uncomfortable, like, that shit can be used to your advantage. It's not just a place of victimhood. So, yeah, it's a road to power. We were just yeah. talking about this last week on, on the show that, uh, you know, I, I both love male attention and so did my wonderful guest, Lindsay, is that, like, half the reason that we sexualize ourselves at all is to, you know, receive that, I don't even know if half, like, 100% of the reason to sexualize yourself is to receive, like, the intention, or the, the attention and the enjoyment from the male figure, and, you know, I think just admitting that and using it as, like, a will to power is so much more enjoyable than uh, going into these, like, misery, pessimistic, bleak spirals of crying on Instagram. Exactly. And like, what makes it so shitty and like gross to me is that people like, pretend that there's not a fun element there, you know, and the reason they do that. And the reason it's successful is because there's even more pleasure to be received when you say that you've been harmed and the public can tell you that you are so precious. Like, first of all, the reason that you're coming to the public and describing that experience is because maybe like you didn't get out of it what you wanted. But I don't know. I mean, I'm not excusing like actual violent, aggressive moments of this type of thing. But of course, of course. But like, I don't know, like, it feels nice to be the favorite, whether in a workplace or not. And I saw a tweet recently that was like, my boss, told me that I looked oh no it was like a government official who said like my boss told me I looked like a bond girl and like that was the end of like the news notification and I was like honey like that's a compliment and why are you hurt like you must be capitalizing on another form of enjoyment or another anticipated form of enjoyment that you can get from publicizing that yeah just say that you like being called a bond girl right it's okay to be chained to the radiator it's right and this is what I'm saying like this film shows us how at first like the me too people she's agreed <laughs> by the status of being harmed and that's all good and fine but eventually after being within that position for a period of time sort of like needs it she needs it she stays with samuel l jackson's character and not only that but she learns from it and i guess potentially has a good relationship with justin timberlake not sure the film ends before we can know, but um, it, it, it allows us to see the potential, maybe like, I don't know, the healthy potential of like learning what it means to be, uh, I guess, 
embracing of of that position which no one today wants to talk about no absolutely not because you know why go through the work of having to embrace pain and be able to use it as any emotional power like why do that when you can just complain If I 